The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. So if you could open your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. I haven't. I've just watched clips. But the beginning of this movie camera fades up to a rusty sign attached to a fence of his property, and the sign reads, no trespassing. The camera then pans up to reveal a large K that marks the entrance of his property. His property is large, but it's desolate and completely run down. Camera, it dissolves to a man lying on his deathbed with a snow globe in his hand. And one last word is whispered on his lips. Rosebud. Slowly, his hand releases the grip of the snow globe and it falls, crashing to the ground. We see a nurse enter his room and then cover his dead silhouette of a body with a sheet. The beginning of a movie marking the end of a great man, Charles Foster Kane. Is named as the American Film Institute's greatest film of all time, Citizen Kane. It chronicles the life of a self-made man, Charles Foster Kane. And it, it encompasses one reporter's attempt to solve the mystery of this final spoken word, Rosebud. Coming up short on what Rosebud means, the reporter finally writes at the end of the movie, Mr. Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it. Maybe Rosebud was something he couldn't get or something he lost. A little spoiler alert, just in case you're going to see it. At the end of the movie, it shows Citizen Kane's household staff burning all of his countless accumulated possessions, one of which being his childhood sled that he named Rosebud. Citizen Kane is considered to be one of the greatest movies of all times, not because just because of its cinematic value, but because it strikes a chord in its viewers. Here is a man in an attempt to make a great name for himself who leaves the rest of his life in complete disarray. His life is marked with betrayal, with resentment, with jealousy, with anger, with a lonely life and death. He puts his faith in power and prestige, and possessions, and it leaves him just wanting more and more. And his purpose, to be the greatest man who ever lived, it leaves him unfulfilled, longing for a simpler and easier life and a little wooden sled. Some of you might be thinking, Chad, you're living in the past. That movie is old school. It was made like in 1945. But the premise is far from old. How many of us, if we are honest really honest, are living our lives with the subtle goal of making our name or the names of our children great. How many of us have put our faith in the things that we believe we deserve, like security or a quality education or a nice house or a 401k? How many of our lives are marked with a spirit of independence and a strong work ethic, while at the same time our relationships are suffering. I asked my son, Cadence, on our way to school a few days ago, <laughs> driving him to school, and I don't know what prompted me to ask it, but we're driving along. I said, Cadence, what's your life about? Like, 
why are you here? What are you, what are you doing? And I, just, I was so curious how he was going to answer. And he said, Dad, my life is about making thousands and thousands of dollars. <laughs> like, what in the world am I teaching my boy? If you have your Bible, please open with me to Philippians 1, uh, starting in verse 27. Paul, in this passage to the Philippians, knows the premise that I'm talking about, about making a great name for ourselves. He knows that making our own name great has the potential to creep into the church. He knows the product of a self-made church. And what's the product of a self-made church? It's disunity. Disunity can take on many forms and functions, but it often involves symptoms like factions, where people of like-mindedness pit themselves against people who they perceive to be the enemy. It can look like uh, entitlement, maybe where people begin to believe grace is no longer undeserved, but rather something that is expected or earned of them. Or it can look like individual agendas where individuals believe that their being right outweighs the need to be righteous. And Paul is encouraging the church in Philippi toward a different way of being, toward unity, toward lives which are marked by belonging not to our own little case K kingdoms, but the kingdom of Christ himself. So read with me the words of Philippians 1, 27 to chapter 2, 4. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of your of their destruction, but of your salvation and that salvation is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Father God, as we dive into your word we dive into it expectantly, expectant that you will encourage us with it, expectant that you will challenge us and discipline us with it, and expectant that you will finish what you start in it. Father, we pray and I pray that any words that I say today that need to be forgotten, may they be forgotten. But Father, if there are things that you have me to say would they pierce the hearts of those that need to hear, including myself, and help us walk away from your word this morning, changed people, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. 
So there's going to be three themes that we see in this passage, and they're marked. It was kind of nice as a preacher to actually study the word and see they're marked by three verbs. So I'm like, ah, yeah, thanks, Paul. You outlined it for me. So the three verbs and the first one, first mark of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is a life, one life lived. The second mark of a citizen of heaven is one faith received. And the third mark of a citizen of heaven is one purpose fulfilled. The first mark, one life lived. Look with me at verse 27. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. At first glance, that might trigger in us a lot of guilt or confusion. Either you might be thinking, you know what? I am so unworthy. Like, look at my track record. Like, there's no way I could live a life worthy of Christ. Or maybe you're thinking, you know what? That sounds like Paul is asking a lot of me. And that I have to earn my place with God by living this worthy life. But the verb here he uses is actually not translated in the ESV as literal as it could be. What Paul is basically saying in this phrase is to live as the citizens of heaven you already are. To be called citizen during the time of the Roman Empire was considered a high honor to be a citizen of Rome. And he wants them to remember that their loyalty, their citizenship, where it's found, it's not found in themselves. It's not found in being Roman. It's found in Christ and his kingdom. A few chapters later in chapter 3, Paul reminds the Philippian church that their citizenship is in heaven, already earned by Christ himself. Therefore, he's just asking them to live out of their already established identity. So what exactly does a citizen of heaven look like, actually? And Paul, in these two verses, 27 and 28, gives us three primary characteristics. The first is found in verse 27. He says, they stand firm. Paul, like a coach to his team before the big game, or like a general to his troops before a significant battle, he's asking them, do not abandon your post or forget your position as left tackle or right guard. Do not forget your position or your post. Stand firm. Second, in verse 27, he hopes to see them striving side by side for the faith or the truth of the gospel. This is an athletic term, much like an offensive line working together to push back the tackles. Third, in verse 28, he wants them to see that they're not frightened by opposition. I don't know if you've ever seen this video. I saw it when I was down in Alabama of uh, the fainting goats. Have you ever seen them? They're basically these little goats that just boop, you scare them and they stiffen up and then they just fall over. You got to check it out. It's hilarious. They just fall over. It's little fainted, fainting, goat, fainting goats. But Paul uses a similar description about the church that they would understand. Don't be like spooked horses. It's the only time he uses this word. Like they have this little scare reaction that goes on. So he gives them these three big offensive strategies. Stay put, stay together, and stay calm. Stay put, stay together, and stay calm. There is nothing that has the potential in my family to kill a conversation faster than politics. And I am such a pot stirrer. 
Because sometimes I like to just mention a certain politician's name just to see how it goes with my family and see how they respond to one another. Like I'll just throw out his name and I'll just watch Mike. Let's see what happens here. It's terrible. It's terrible. But politics, they reveal what's, what's going on. There's factions that have been born out of this, some of the strong influences we have in media. Do you see them? Like these factions that form. And Paul is seeing maybe some of these factions starting to form in the church. Are you this or are you that? Are you Republican or are you Democrat? In Green Bay, are you an East Sider or are you a West Sider? Are you a homeschooler or are you a public schooler? Are you a Calvinist? Are you an Arminian? Are you an infant Baptist or are you a believer Baptist? Paul is aware that there are factions that are influencing the Philippian church and asking them to join this team or that team. And he encourages the church to remember they're all part of the same team with different positions, different responsibilities. He asks them to work together and not be scared maybe by what the Barna Research polls say about the decline of Christianity or the increase of other faiths. This is not where our security is found. He's saying, we are citizens of heaven, so live here as if you're there. Paul gives us an idea of what Christian citizens of heaven look like. We're secure. We're committed to working together, and we have nothing to be afraid of. I put the lights on in the auditorium today on purpose. Too often when we're hearing a sermon, we hear it for how it affects me. Today, I want us to hear Paul's words collectively. This one life lived is not lived in isolation from anyone else, but lived as a body, one body, the church, to be able to see one another's faces and families more clearly will hopefully help remind us of that today. The challenge that Paul might be asking us is for us, where might we be moving away from our assigned posts? Are we making potential compromises that we didn't used to make? Are we spending more time daydreaming about what could be, forgetting to be where God has us right now? Are we believing that the church is my church, and if it doesn't meet my needs, I'm out? Or are we asking, where does this church need my gifts and my labor? Another question is, what, what spooks us as believers? Is it a fear of certain powerful people who may be even sitting in this room right now? That you're afraid you'll offend? Is it fear of saying something to someone that they might disagree with? Paul is encouraging us to think not about ourselves, but to actually think about the work of the collective church and the work of Christ as citizens of heaven. William Barclay tells the tale of a veteran French soldier who was in battle. And as he was going along, he comes upon a rookie paralyzed soldier who's sitting in the trenches and he is just trembling with fear. And this veteran soldier reaches out his hand to him and he says, come son, and you and I will do something fine for France. Paul is saying to the Philippians and to us, come brother, come sister, and you and I will do something fine for Christ. So living as a citizen of Christ's kingdom involves remaining unmoved, striving together for a common goal without flinching. 
But as the heat gets turned up on the citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom, he reminds them that what is actually happening to them right now, these things that are going on in the church that are unsettling, is actually a gift. And that leads us to the second mark, which is one faith received. Look with me at verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Literally, literally, he's saying to them, you have been graced with this like that of a gift. Faith and suffering are a gift. We can understand how believing in God is a gift, right? It's not of our own efforts, but it's because Christ shone light on our darkened lives that we believed in him. We can understand how faith is a gift. But to also be gifted with suffering? What in the world? How could suffering be a gift? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to understand what he means by saying it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. He is literally meaning that we are suffering on behalf of Christ. As a citizen of Christ's heavenly kingdom, we are privileged to carry on his work of suffering in his place. We are suffering Christ's suffering. And you can see how that has much different flavor than just suffering for the sake of suffering. He is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, Paul says in Colossians, by our suffering. What in the world could be lacking in Christ's affliction? Wasn't the cross enough? Yes. But we, as citizens of heaven, have an opportunity, dare I say, a privilege of being living pictures of his saving cross to a dying world. Have you ever heard the expression to be graced with someone's presence? Our suffering as Christians allows a watching world to be graced with the presence of the cross. But Christ didn't face the cross without a comfort of knowing that his people, they're going to be redeemed and rescued through his suffering. And we too can face our crosses in this Christian citizenship, knowing that through our suffering, Christ is actually immigrating more and more citizens into his kingdom. Paul in verse 30 reminds them that it was through his suffering, through Paul's suffering, that many of the Philippian church actually came to faith in Jesus. I get really uh, hypnotized by advertising. Uh, I don't know if you do, but advertising that says things like, you deserve this. You deserve that. You deserve a break today. Go to McDonald's. Or you deserve to be treated right. Right? Or you deserve a BMW for all your hard work. Or your kids deserve a superior college education. Or your wife deserves the house of her dreams. That is flat out rubbish. Rubbish that I find myself slowly believing the more I live in this country. Friends, I'll tell you what I deserve. I deserve nothing short of hell. 
outside of what Christ has done through me, I have merited nothing except his wrath. As one writer puts it, it is clear that my weaknesses are the only trophies on my shelf. But living as a citizen of Christ's glorious and undeserved kingdom, where I am saved from my trophies of sin, I now can display the trophies of suffering. What in the world does that mean? It means that in whatever makes being a Christian hard or difficult, you are displaying his cross. I think of countless times where I say, man, it would be so much easier if I weren't a Christian. I wouldn't wrestle with sin. I wouldn't have to serve my wife as Christ served me. I wouldn't have to love my enemies. I wouldn't have to be marginalized and be that hated minority in the media. But instead, grace changes our minds. We see the gift of life and salvation given to us through the cross. And we strive to take up our crosses daily. So I battle daily with that plaguing pattern of sin. We can love our spouse when they treat us like garbage. We can give a second, a third, a 60th chance to someone who's betrayed us or deceived us or manipulated us. And being marginalized or being the minority in our culture is the evidence the watching world needs to know that our citizenship is not here, but in heaven. I heard a quote recently that illustrates this point well. G.K. Chesterton, a great writer and theologian, comments, on the constant struggle facing the church throughout history. And he says, on five occasions in history, the church has gone to the dogs, but on each occasion... It was the dogs that died. Citizens of this world see something in us that is lasting in spite of our suffering. Even after our death, they see something that is lasting. The church doesn't die and it cannot be killed no matter the intensity of suffering because we represent an eternal God. So what specifically does Paul hope that the world sees in these citizens of Christ, these citizens of heaven. And he hopes that they see this final mark, one purpose fulfilled. Jesus in John 17 and Paul in Philippians 2 pray that the watching world would see one thing, unity. Jesus says in John 17, Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one. And Paul prays and pleads in verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, can you just hear the earnestness of his plea? And these ifs that he's saying are not that he believes it's not going to happen. He's actually believing that it's because of all of these things that unity can happen. We all have encouragement from Christ our King, and we're not left dead in our sins. We all have comfort from our brother Jesus that we're not too unlovable or too unforgivable through his pouring out of his love upon his people. And we all have participation of Christ that we're not left alone. And that participation comes from the spirit of God that lives in us. And we all have his mercy and compassion overflowing from us. 
Because while we were yet enemies, he showed us great mercy and compassion. Paul finishes his plea saying, make my joy complete or literally fill up my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you hear the repetition? The same one, same full. Do nothing from selfish ambition. And this means literally like rivalry or competitiveness. Do nothing from conceit, which basically means the need to be right. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I wish I had more time to unpack this verse because it's one of my favorites. But thankfully, Dan has the privilege next week of unpacking the concept of humility more as we see Christ's example of humility. But what I can begin maybe getting our minds around is the basic concept of humility. If our purpose we are called to as citizens of heaven, citizens of Christ's kingdom, if our purpose is unity, then Paul says the primary ingredient, really the only ingredient to this recipe, to this goal of unity, is humility. Self-interest competitiveness, boasting, being right, they're all the antithesis of unity. Humility is really easily defined. It's just an accurate understanding of yourself in light of who God is. Basically, literally, a littleness of mind in how much you think about yourself. I mean, think about how countercultural that is. A littleness of mind in how much time you devote to thinking about yourself. And as a counselor, I can say, I can say with certainty, not even a counselor, as a husband, I can say with certainty, humility, honestly, is the resolution to every marital spat. It's the solution to every family rift. Humility is the solution to every church split. Because being right will never ultimately win an argument. It will only leave you unapproachable. Being number one will never ultimately bring you friends or status. It will only alienate you. And being all that you can be on your own will never serve anyone, including yourself. But Jesus, our citizen Christ, showed us in the truest form what kingdom living looks like. He showed humility, littleness of regard for himself by emptying himself of his own rights as creator of all things and name above all names. He emptied himself and subjected himself to a human body and physical death. He saw others as more important than himself by not battling for the top spot with God, but rather going to sinners, going to the lowest spot and taking on their form. And he looked to their interests, to their sin and their needs by becoming a servant, following God's will to the T and dying our death so we didn't have to. Citizens of Christ, where is God asking you to lay down your need to be right? Where is he asking you to take the second or the third or the last chair? 
What need or struggle is he asking you to finally pay attention to in your wife or your husband or your children or your coworker? Citizen Christ, he's asking you to die to yourself in order that others might live. Citizen Kane ends tragically. C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, ends brilliantly. I don't know if you know the story, but a man basically has a dream and is given the privilege of seeing glimpses of heaven and hell. Hell is filled with individuals who, in their pursuit of striving for a great name, find themselves isolated and millions of miles away from relationship to one another, much like Citizen Kane ended his life. Heaven, on the other hand, shows a brilliant contrast. In one scene in particular, this man is standing with his teacher, basically this man who's showing him the things of heaven. And he describes one encounter in which a Christian woman is entering into heaven for the first time. And here's what he writes. And I've abridged it, edited it just a little bit. It's Lewis, so it can be a little thick. So let me make it a little simpler. Uh, So here's what he says as he's watching this woman enter into heaven. First came bright spirits, angels who danced and scattered flowers. Then on the left and on the right, at each side of the Forest Avenue came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow sick or old. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady in whose honor all this was being done. I remember her courtesy and joy which produces in my memory the illusion of a great and shining train that followed her across the grass. But I've forgotten. And only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it? Is it? I whispered to my guide, hoping to discover a great celebrity. Not at all, he said. It's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived in Golders Green, or say, Pulaski. Well, she seems to be a person of particular importance. Yes, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who, who are those gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds. They're like dancing and throwing flowers before her. A thousand angels surround her. And who are all these young men and women on each side? These, my friend, are her sons and her daughters. Oh, she must have had a very large family, sir. Well, every young man or boy that met her, became her son. Even if it was only the boy that brought meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? No. There are those that steal other people's children. But her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents' loving them more. 
Few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. Every person, beast, and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her, they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it's like when you throw a stone into a pool and the waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young and it has hardly come to its full strength. But already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint such as Susan Smith to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. Friends, citizens of Christ, may our entrance into heaven be like that of Sarah Smith. Who cares if no one remembers our name or if we never leave a mark on this world? Let's remain in our God-given positions, standing firm in our faith and standing firm in our suffering. Let's remain united in purpose, thinking less of ourselves and more of others. And let's allow the citizens of this world to experience and remember through our lives the overflowing joy and love which flows from Christ himself. Let them wake from death to life. And let them be invited to their own citizenship in Christ's great kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are humbled to be citizens of your great kingdom. And we acknowledge, Father, that we have forgotten our standing. We've forgotten where we were and where we are. But Father, would you unite us? Would you bring unity to this church and to the people around us and the relationships around us? And would you allow us to experience this overflowing love that might be poured out on the lost people of this world, the lost citizens of this world. We pray all this in Christ's perfect name. Amen.